So we're going to be reading from Acts 11, 1 through 18, and his report to the church. I'll read from the English Standard Version. Acts 11, 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa. And bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then... God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When we heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And as a Gentile, I'm glad that he did. This week, I went to the movie theater, which is something I have not done in quite a while. I went with my wife and two oldest kids to watch the latest Thor movie. And while watching this movie, there was, um, well, I don't know, a, a weird thing going on while I was consuming a hot dog and a rather large container of popcorn watching an incredibly fit guy play a god on screen and wondering why I didn't look like that. I, uh, I, I don't know if it's just because I'm, I'm, I'm getting older, but I, I found myself thinking um, I could have waited for that to come out on some streaming service before going to watch it. But nonetheless, there's this interesting thing about the movie, kind of the, one of the themes of the movie is this question, are gods good? Now, of course, in this scenario, there are multiple gods, and there's this question, are they good? With all of this power that they have, all of these extra abilities that they have, can they be trusted, and, and are, are they good? Can they, can they be reliable? Well, I won't, I won't ruin the movie, 
Um, but as we come to the book of Acts, we're, we're seeing, as it were, Luke explaining to Theophilus and the original recipients of this that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning and showing His ongoing works, what He is doing, how He continues to work, even though now He's no longer physically present, how He is ruling and reigning in heaven. And so if you can remember, as we start out in, in, in the book of Acts, initially things seem to be going so well. We, we have the day of Pentecost happen and Peter preaches and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And then not much longer after that, we have him preaching along with John at Solomon's portico there by the temple and thousands more come to faith in Christ. And we have this, this, these summary statements by Luke about how united this church is, how together they are, and, and how they're sharing everything in common, and everything seems to be going so well, but then of course, persecution begins. And it starts with Peter and John being taken before the council there in Jerusalem, and then it goes from Peter and John being taken before the council in Jerusalem to, next thing you know, Stephen is being murdered. Not on some side street uh, in the shadows, but right out in front of everyone. Stephen is being murdered. And then we're told in the beginning of chapter 8 that this guy named Saul, is he's just he's passionate about this persecution. And this great persecution erupts against the church. And as we come into chapter 9, verse 1, that persecution is not lessened, but this guy, Saul, he is ravaging the church. Not content for that persecution to stay there in Jerusalem, but that persecution is spreading now and his intention is to take it to Damascus and on from there. And one may be wondering what is going on? What, what, what is happening? What is, what is Jesus who is the Lord over this church? What is he doing with this power and authority that he has? But at the same time, we see this masterful plan unfolding. Because Luke here, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he records these things, isn't just recording the events from a human perspective, but is recording them so that we can see, as it were, part of God's perspective looking down. We, we see that this gospel that has been given to this, this group of people, this 120 or so that were in that upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, this small group of people, how now in God's sovereignty and in His plan and in His purposes, that gospel is spreading. And so while, while we have this small group that might be sitting there going, how in the world are we going to get the gospel throughout all of Judea, much less Samaria, much less to the ends of the earth, God and his providence is so working so that even through this persecution, we see the gospel make its way throughout Judea and then to Samaria. And then from Samaria, we see it spread. And we've seen, as it were, these three conversions take place. And one of them with the Ethiopian eunuch, God in a moment shows that He can get the Gospel physically to, the, to, to what would be beyond the ends of the earth for them. I mean, that little group sitting in Jerusalem would never have thought that, that the Gospel could make it all the way to Ethiopia. And just like that, God in His sovereignty makes it happen. And then, then this heart that is so hard, this man that as Luke records it is kind of at the center of this persecution against the church, in a moment, the Lord Jesus Christ shows His power and authority to penetrate what seems like the hardest, most stubborn heart that would never be changed. And not only does He change that heart, but He takes Saul, converts him, and now Saul's passion 
and, and determination is turned towards the advancement of the Gospel. And he raises up in Saul the man who will be the apostle to the Gentiles. And now, now as we've seen in chapter 10, if you've been with us these past couple of weeks, we see now the Gospel going to the nations. That now the Gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And again, it's under God's sovereign hand that these things are taking place. Now, we've stressed this throughout this process. And maybe if you've been following with us, you're, you're almost uh, a little tired of hearing how God is orchestrating all of these things. But I'm telling you this because Luke stresses this. He wants us to see that this was not great planning on the part of the early church, that this was not accidental, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ continued acts as He rules and reigns from heaven. That's what all of the book of Acts is about. More than it being the Acts of the Apostles, it's the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. And as we come to our text this morning, we see that reality again. Verse 1 says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. Now that verse to the original recipients would have thrown their minds back to a verse that's all the way back in chapter 8, verse 14. Luke uses almost the exact same wording as he did back in chapter 8, verse 14, when the apostles heard that the gospel had made its way to Samaria. Now, we could read that and go, oh, maybe there's, is, is this like, um, uh, like, I don't know, there, there were posts on social media or something and it spread that way. No, what Luke intends, I think, for us to realize is that, that this spreading of this word is happening under God's guidance. He wants this message to, to advance. He wanted back in chapter 8 for the apostles to hear that the gospel had made it to Samaria. And now he wants the apostles and the brothers, which is just a way of talking about the rest of the church. He wants them to hear that the gospel has made it to the Gentiles. He wants them to hear that. His hand is all over this. And what we read here in chapter 11 is not an accident. It's not a mistake. This is all part of God's intentional plan. In fact, that's one of the things that I think is so beautiful as I come to this, this passage and as I sat down, I'll be honest, as I sat down to study this passage this week, I found myself thinking, how am I going to re-preach what we already preached last week? I mean, this is just a recount of the same stories. But this is very intentional. What we see here, I think, first of all, is that we marvel and take comfort in God's wisdom. I don't know if any of you are like to plan events. Maybe you enjoy planning events. Maybe you consider yourself an event planner. You like that kind of thing. That's mind-boggling to me because really good event planners need to be able to see all of the little details as well as kind of like the big picture of the whole event and how it's all going to come together. And so you not only know what kind of flowers the, the bride wants, but you know why she wants those kind of flowers and how it all fits together in the grand scheme of the wedding. And a really good event planner does all of this stuff and if they do a fantastic job, you never know that they did their job at all, right? Because you're just, wow, this is a great event. And there's, there's a, a lot to be said for a really good event planner. But even the best event planner cannot plan the event and also plan and calculate every single possible outcome, right? I mean, that, that would take it too far. 
You already pay probably quite a bit for a really good event planner, but there's no way that that event planner can not only plan the event, but also calculate and tell you what the outcome of the event is going to be. How people are going to respond. Right? This is part of what's portrayed in that Thor movie, is that you have these gods who have this power, and they use their power, and then they, 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 they use their power to accomplish one thing, but oh man, then, oh, I didn't see that coming. And what they did in one moment screws up the reaction in the next moment, and then they have to try and go fix that. That's not what's happening here in chapter 11. What's happening here is we're seeing the wisdom of God who is so infinite that not only did he orchestrate by his sovereign hand Peter's vision, Cornelius' vision, the meeting of those guys, the six Jewish men from Joppa that came with Peter, and the, 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 the house there, Cornelius, and all that were there in his household receiving the gospel and the Holy Spirit falling down, but he knew what the outcome would be, and it's all part of his wise plan and purpose. He didn't just plan that one event and then say, well, let's just see what happens. No, he planned that event in his sovereignty and in his immense wisdom, he knew what would happen next. He knew exactly what the outcome was going to be. And so he's planned this moment that we read about in chapter 10. He's planned it and he knows how things are going to flow from there. It's astounding to me. It's overwhelming to me as we think about how much effort we put into trying to plan our lives and, and to be wise and make decisions and those things. And yet how often have we done our best to make a plan only for there to be something we didn't see or to have some outcome we never expected? That never happens with God. He's never surprised. He never plans an event and then goes, Oh man, I, I didn't see that happening. No, he knew this was going to happen. He intended this to happen. He intended for the word about what happened there with the Gentiles to spread. He intended for these ripples to flow out from the rock that he threw in the water. And not a single ripple happens outside of his wisdom and his sovereignty and his plans and his purposes. And that for us is immense comfort. And we ought to be amazed at that. We ought to be amazed at the immensity of God who is not just like some extra powerful person who's able to make what He wants happen, but He knows all of the outcomes. He knows all of the possibilities. It's inconceivable. And in the midst of that, Luke records this so as to make clear to us, don't think that way and then think God is some uh, stoic person up in heaven who's just moving pieces around on a chessboard that he cares nothing about. Peter wasn't a pawn on God's chessboard that he's moving about and, and doesn't really care about Peter. Oh, no, 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 no. No, there's this amazing reality that God is sovereign, that He is so wise that He knows the outcomes, but He also is gracious and loving and cares about every single person that's involved in what He's doing. He cares about Peter and we're going to see Peter's growth and we continue to see Peter's growth. He cared about Cornelius and, 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 and he intended to bring the gospel to Cornelius and his family and his relatives who were there in that house. They weren't just pawns on a chessboard. He wasn't saying, okay, well, I'll use this person so I can get to my ends. No, this sovereign, wise God is gracious and loving 
And even as we come to this passage, he's not setting this up as a gotcha for the church in Jerusalem. To be like, see, you guys are wrong. I just want to just put that out there for everybody recorded in Scripture so it's written down forever. No, he loves and cares about them. And so he's orchestrating these things in his sovereignty with this immense wisdom, with this immense love and care and compassion for all who are involved. That hurts my brain just to think about all that. That hurts my brain just to try and conceive of planning at that level. And yet this is our God. This is our God who's orchestrated these things. And so this word spreads. It gets to the apostles and it gets to uh, the churches throughout Judea and specifically to Jerusalem. And notice what the word is that has spread. The word is that the Gentiles have received the word of God which is another way of saying they've heard the words about Jesus, they've heard the gospel, and they've received it. They've believed. Verse 2 says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised party criticized him. Now that phrase, the circumcised party, you may even have a note there in your Bible, is really just uh, those of the circumcision. Now later on in the book of Acts, we're going to have a group of people who believe that in order for Gentiles to truly be saved, they need to convert to Judaism. They need to be circumcised and begin keeping the law of Moses. I don't think that's who this group is here. They're, they're just simply some who are uh, concerned and they're of the circumcision. It's another way of saying that they are Jews, obviously. And they come and they criticize Peter once he arrives in Jerusalem. They take issue with him, with what he, with what he has done. Now, notice what they take issue with. It says that they take issue with him not because the Gentiles have received the gospel. They take issue with the fact, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's their concern. That's their issue. You ate with uncircumcised people. Verse 4 says, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe it's because I've watched too many movies like Thor in my lifetime. I love um, action movies, kind of grew up with Arnold Schwarzenegger, great acting, uh, Sylvester Stallone, these people. Um, but I, I, I can do this when I come to any story. I'm immediately going, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Right? Who's G.I. Joe? Who's Cobra? I know some of you are like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. But that's what I want to know when I'm reading. And so I read this passage and I get circumcised party criticizing Peter. Ha! Bad guys. Right? And, and then everything they do, I know that's the bad guys and I'm for the good guys. But I don't think that's how Luke is writing this account. I don't think that's what he intends. This group of circumcised, these Jews, of these circumcised party, I think they're well-intended. I think they have legitimate concerns. And if nothing else, what Luke tells us is that they go directly to Peter. As soon as Peter comes to Jerusalem, they go directly to him and they express their concerns to him. And Peter, for his part, having heard their concerns, it says that he explains and he tries to give an orderly account to them. Now we notice as Peter gives his account that it doesn't happen in chronological order just uh, from, from the way that Luke recorded it. It happens in chronological order from Peter's perspective because he's telling the story now. And so what does he say? Well, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending 
being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice say to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, I don't know if I was Peter, if I would add the next part. Right? I mean, Peter's retelling the story. He can kind of clean up his image here a little bit if he wants to. Right? I had this trance, this vision, sheep coming down from heaven, God's communicating to me, and he told me to do something. Boy, I did it. Right? Right away. Yes, sir. Not what happens. What does Peter say? But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or clean has ever entered my mouth. Now, when Peter says that, what is Peter doing? Who is he identifying with? He's identifying with this group that's come and criticized him, that's taken issue with him, right? Because their issue is that he sat and he ate with uncircumcised men. And Peter, in a way, is saying, listen, I I get your concern. I I get what you're concerned about because I was there. I was concerned too. In fact, I got a vision from heaven and God telling me, rise, kill, and eat. And I said, nope, not going to do it. Not just once. I did it three times. That's what happened. So Peter identifies with them and their their concerns in this moment. By no means, Lord, nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice, verse 9 says, but the voice answered a second time from heaven what God has made clean. Do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, uh, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. So Peter's doing something here. He's, he's telling them this vision that God gave him and he's clear. I wasn't looking for this. God gave this vision to me and he's connecting immediately the arrival of these men from Caesarea with this vision that God's giving. He's saying all of this is happening by God's direction. These men didn't just show up uh, at that moment, coincidentally, no, they showed up because this was all part of what God was doing. Verse 12, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. So now we've got a sign of a vision. We've got the sign of the arrival of these men from Caesarea. We've got the, a sign of the Holy Spirit speaking to Peter to go with them without distinction. And we'll get the greatest sign of all towards the end that, that these Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. So we have signs that Peter is pointing to, and we have witnesses. He specifically mentions these six brothers also accompanied me. I highlight all that to say Peter is doing everything he can to explain to these brothers who have this concern as clearly as possible what God was doing. In fact, it's really important even to see that Peter doesn't make this a debate between him and these of the circumcised party. He doesn't put himself in the center and say, well, this is what I think and and No, he's stepping back and saying, listen, I'm just going to tell you what God did. And in fact, that's the very question he leaves them with in the end. So he gives them signs. He gives them these witnesses. And says when they entered the man's house, it's interesting that through all of this, Peter does not specifically mention Cornelius because he's not the point. The point is the gospel going to the Gentiles and eating with uncircumcised men. Verse 13, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which 
you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, Peter is retelling this. He's interpreting things. He's, he, he is adding details that we didn't have before, which is a normal way of recounting things, depending on the context. When you and I tell stories, we, we give different details and explain things in different ways. That's what Peter is doing here. In verse 15, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Now, we talked about this last week, that Luke records this moment of the Holy Spirit falling on Cornelius and all of the people in the house there who believe. He describes it in such a way so as to remind the readers of the moment of Pentecost. He wants to draw this connection to show that the same thing is happening here. And now Peter, out of his own mouth, is saying, Guys, I was there, I saw it, I witnessed it, it happened just like it happened to us in the beginning. He makes an even stronger statement because he adds this, he says in verse 16, and I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter's statement there is big. Because Jesus got those words from John the Baptist. So if we were to go all the way back to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, people come to John the Baptist and they ask him, are you the Christ? And John says, no, I'm not the Christ. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his, unlace his sandals. And here's the other main difference. The main difference is I'm baptizing you with water, but when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Fast forward all the way to the beginning of Acts. Jesus is with His disciples. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And He tells them to wait in Jerusalem because they're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come. So He takes John's words and He says, you guys know I am the Messiah. I'm returning to the Father and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So Peter is making this very clear connection, picking up those same words and is now saying in that same way, with that same level of significance, that day of Pentecost symbolized this moment was that significant. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit just like we were. And it reminded him of those words of Christ, which were originally words from John the Baptist. Verse 17, then he says, if then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? Right? Peter's backed away. This isn't about me. I'm just going to tell you what God has done. And, and, and now you answer this question that I had to answer. Who was I to stand in God's way in what He was doing? Now, I think we have to um, we have to understand, as we've mentioned before, that this is a significant moment in redemptive history. That that those who have these concerns are living through a moment that, as we look back on, we maybe have greater clarity than they did in the moment. But significant things are changing. Let me just give you a couple of them. We'll we'll wade into, as it were, some deep waters here and and then we'll we'll come back out. But here are a few of the things, and we've mentioned some of these things already. Here are some things that that have happened. One, the law of Moses has been fulfilled and replaced by Christ's saving work. The law of Moses has been fulfilled and replaced by Christ's saving work. 
Now, by saving work, I don't just mean his death, burial, and resurrection. I also mean his life and all of his teaching. Right? When Jesus commissions his disciples and tells them to go out and make disciples, he doesn't say, go out in the power of the Spirit and preach the law of Moses. What does he say? Teach them all that I have taught and commanded you. There's been a a significant shift here. If the law of Moses has been done away with, if the Mosaic covenant has been done away with, then also what was unclean under the, under the law of Moses has now been made clean in Christ. Now, this is really significant and it goes back to this vision that Peter gets. And, and, and I had not grasped this before, but as I was studying this this week, it's really important to see when Peter has this vision, He doesn't see a sheet full of unclean animals and God say, Peter, eat unclean animals. That would be very different. He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, get up and break the law. I'm giving you a pass. You can break the law. That's not what he says. What does God say? God says, I have made them clean. That's what he says. I was the one under the Mosaic law who made certain animals unclean. I am the God who is in control. And now under this new covenant, I am telling you they are clean. God doesn't command Peter to eat unclean animals. He says, no, what was once seen as unclean, I am telling you now is clean. So you can partake. You can eat. So the law of Moses, excuse me, has been fulfilled and replaced by Christ saving work. Second, Jews and Gentiles can enjoy fellowship with one another in the new covenant community. Jews and Gentiles can come together in this new covenant community and enjoy rich fellowship together. Now, this was very different than the way things were before. And it brings us to this third point, and this is not all that we could say, but it's enough, it's enough for now, because this question then becomes, well, then how would we identify God's people? And at this point, now God's people are going to be identified through believers' baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God's people are going to be identified through believers' baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, that is part of Peter's point. They received the Holy Spirit just like we did. And if they receive the Holy Spirit, then they are part of us. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. I love that. They had a concern. They took issue with Peter. They brought it to Peter. Peter explained to them what the Lord was doing. They listened and they fell silent. What we see happening in this passage in a very real and tangible way is the Lord Jesus Christ directing and correcting His church. We've talked about this as a church family as we are walking through difficult things as a church family. At different times, some of you even here in this room have stood up and talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord over His church. Amen? And in conversations with some of you at different times, you've reminded me and encouraged me with the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord over His church. And indeed He is. And right here in this passage, what we see is we see the Lord Jesus Christ working to correct His church, to steer, to guide His church in a very tangible and clear way. 
One of the things that's so beautiful here is that you see that the church is made up of imperfect people, but they have a perfect Savior. Peter was imperfect. Well-intentioned, but he didn't understand how the Gospel was going to get to the Gentiles. He didn't plan to go to Cornelius' house. God drug Peter to Cornelius' house. And now as Peter encounters these brothers who are there in Jerusalem who have some of the same concerns that he had, now the Lord continues to work and is correcting them and helping them to see and to come to a deeper understanding of what He's doing. The church is made up of well-intended but imperfect people who are dependent upon a perfect God who leads and guides His church. I love the beauty of what's happening here that that they listen to what God has, has communicated, they fall silent, and then not only do they fall silent, the rest of verse 18 says, and they glorified God. Now, if you're of my personality and you think they glorified God, I think, well, the praise band came out, right? The, the, the guitar was going, the drums started going, people, may, I don't know, maybe they were dancing a little bit, and they're praising God. That's, that's not what it says. Now, they may have done that, but that's not what it says. How do they glorify God? They glorify God with affirming what He is saying. With falling in line with what He's communicating. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now we know, if you know the book of Acts, <laughs> this is not the end of this situation. right? I mean, there are going to be a lot more complications that are going to continue with this whole Jew-Gentile, how are we doing life together thing and all of that. This isn't the end of it, but what it is, is it's this group of people saying, if this is what God is doing, if this is what He's communicating, then we will fall silent and we will fall in line with how He is correcting and moving us. That's beautiful. Church, our hope, as I already mentioned, is not in our ability to get everything right. For we are at best imperfect people. Our confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ who is perfect. Our confidence is in the fact that as we see Him in very tangible ways leading and guiding His church here in Jerusalem and correcting and encouraging them in the direction that He wants them to go, He is still alive and at work now in His church. Because if He's not alive and at work now in His church, if He's still not as active as we see Him here in this passage, then I'll tell you something. Maybe you're not there, but I will, I am ready to just, I will hang it up. I know how imperfect I am. Well, not how imperfect, but I'm pretty clued in. And even with the best of intentions, I make unwise decisions. If, if we're banking, if I'm banking just for my life on my ability to figure it out, on my ability to get it right all of the time, then I might as well give up. I have to be confident that God is active and at work, that He's still really leading, guiding, and directing. And He is. When we came to the point as a family where we were talking with the elders here at this church about leaving Senegal and coming back here so that I could join staff and become the youth pastor here. It was a time of great 
struggle for me. And among the many things I was struggling with, one of the things that was really clear and, 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 and that I, I found myself battling with over and over again was this question of, can I really trust God? I've, I've, I've looked into the Word. I'm seeking God in prayer. I'm talking with my wife. We're talking together as a family. I'm seeking the counsel of, of the elders here at this church. I'm seeking the counsel of other brothers and sisters in Christ who, who have been a help to me throughout life. And I'm talking with all of those. And now a decision has to be made. And I found myself in moments paralyzed in fear thinking that I'm going to make the wrong decision and I'm going to screw up the rest of my life. Not just my life, but my wife and my kids. I'm going to mess it up. And deep down inside, there was even this part of me that thought, God's going to let me make a choice. And then 10 miles down the road, he's going to go, ha! You made the wrong choice. Told you. I came to this point. I remember specifically talking with one brother over Skype there in, in Senegal, and, and he's telling me, Eric, you have to be able to trust the Lord. You have to trust that He is in control, He is active, He is good, that He actually guides our lives. You have to trust that even if you make this decision and the immediate consequences or outflow aren't necessarily what you think they are, that that does not mean that God cannot be trusted. He's not, that He's not good, that He doesn't care. Yet you have to be able to trust Him. Church, God is active. He can be trusted. Statements like, Jesus Christ is Lord over the church are not just things that we say. It's a reality. He is leading and guiding and directing His church. We see it here in this text and He's doing it now. We're totally dependent upon Him to correct and to guide us. And there's this beauty here in this text as we see that happen with Peter and then also with this church in Jerusalem. Well, where do we land? We land at the end of all of this with this simple statement that then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance leading to life. Why all of this fuss? What in the world is God? Why does all of this matter? Why take all of this time? Luke takes all of chapter 10 and now into chapter 11. Why all of this fuss? There's all of this fuss because God's desire is that the gospel would go to the nations. And God is using these circumstances and these situations, orchestrating them purposely so that His heart would be implanted in His church so that it would take His gospel to the nations. He's working so that His heart would be implanted in His church so that they would take His gospel to the nations. Back in Jerusalem, uh, well, I guess the, the scene is in Jerusalem, but, but back in the early chapters of Acts, Peter preaches, and when he preaches there in Jerusalem, he preaches repentance to the Jews, and it's specifically around the issue of the fact the Messiah came and they rejected him. In fact, in Solomon's Portugal, he preaches and he uses these strong words, you killed the author of life. And he calls them to repent about their thinking regarding the Messiah. There is salvation in no one else, Peter says. You've got to change your understanding of who this was. God has testified in raising Him from the dead that He is in fact the Messiah. You need to believe on Him. 
But now as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, what is it that he's going to, what's this repentance? What, what is he going to call them to? They weren't in Jerusalem for this. They didn't have the Old Testament that testified to this coming Messiah. What, what, what is he going to call them to? What's this repentance that leads to life? Well, Paul will lay this out in great ways in the beginning of Romans. And say apart from the revelation of the Old Testament, there's this revelation in creation. The creation declares the glory of God. And that rather than worshiping the Creator, they have turned and worshiped the creation. Instead of giving thanks, they have turned and made idols. And we'll see as the book of Acts goes on that this message goes out to the Gentiles to turn from the idols, to turn from worshiping the creation and worship the Creator. Why? Why, why, why go through all of this? Why does this, why does this matter? Well, if we could go all the way back to the, to the beginning of, of Luke's gospel, we would see a God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, whose heart is to seek and to save the lost. We would see a God who, who, with all of the wonder and beauty in the world around us, is a God who, it, finds joy. He rejoices in the one lost sheep that's found. He's a God who rejoices in the lost coin that's located. He's the God who rejoices in the prodigal son who returns. And so He is the God who desires that this great gift of repentance be preached to the Gentiles that they too might have life. We looked at an amazing picture this morning of stars. And I want to show another picture this morning that I'm not going to describe a whole lot just for the sake of the recording. I would argue that this picture brings greater joy and glory to our God than the picture of those galaxies that we saw earlier. Brother in Christ coming out of the darkness and lies of Islam, placing faith in Jesus Christ and now being baptized by his pastor and his brother. That's why. Because our God is a God who delights to save sinners by his grace. Because our God is a God who, who desired for His church to gain His heart to take the gospel to the nations. Because this is what He wants them to see. He is doing and what brings Him glory. And so He goes through all of this work. He purposes all of these things. He allows this interaction here in our passage, beginning of chapter 11, to, be, to help his people see this is my heart. That now you would go and you would carry the gospel. And that's exactly what we see. That's the outflow that we see as brothers and sisters in Christ begin to share the gospel, not just with fellow Jews, but also with Gentiles, with the nations. Brothers and sisters, this is God's heart for us. 
that we would have this heart in us, that we would delight in the same things that delight our God. The advancement of the Gospel as people hear the good news about Jesus and find in Him the only place, the only thing that leads to life. Well, let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your heart to save sinners. If it were not for that, not a single one of us would be here this morning. I thank You, Lord Jesus, that You are leading and guiding and directing Your church. And I thank You, Father, that You are wise and You are sovereign and You are good. Father, I pray for us as a church that that as You led and guided and directed Your church here in in Jerusalem, You would so lead and guide and direct us and, and that the outflow of that, one of the specific outflows of that would be that Your heart to see repentance that leads to life proclaimed to the nations would become ever more our heart. Not just overseas and around the world, but, but in our families and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in the networks that we move in and with the people we connect with. May it be so for our good, but also, Lord, ultimately for Your glory because your son is worthy. He is the lamb that was slain, risen, now exalted, and worthy of the worship of all peoples. We pray these things in his name. Amen.